the Lord from Lamentations 1, verses 1 to 6. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow she is, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed festivals. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan. Her young women grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. All the splendor has departed from daughter Zion. Her princes are like deer that find no pasture. In weakness, they have fled before the pursuer. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to Bethany Community Church this morning. I'm honored and thrilled that you're worshiping with us. We're continuing this morning, second in a series entitled, Can You See It? About the Kingdom of God. And we're discovering the Kingdom of God through looking at the Beatitudes, which is a, a set of statements that Jesus articulates in Matthew chapter 5. This morning, the statement that we look at is, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. And so our service will be a little bit different in this, or at least the teaching time a bit different in that uh, I'll be articulating some uh, teaching from the scripture about mourning, and then we'll have an active response time at the end. So know that this is where we're headed, and then just please would you, if for a moment, join me in prayer as we look to the Lord for this time that he's given us together. Father, uh, we pause now and we're grateful in many profound ways for the abundant gifts that many of us in the room have received. All of us, the sunshine, all of us, the rain that is soon to come again, <laughs> that will water the earth, the change of seasons, the lengthening days. In every way, these very physical elements remind us that the food we eat, the water we drink, the shelter we enjoy, the energy we consume, these are all gifts from you and we're thankful, we're grateful and as well, many more gifts. Father, we also know that we live in a broken world and that brokenness is within us, in some of our relationships and around us, and we grieve. Would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, teach us now, Father, to be people who represent your heart in our gratitude and in our grief, in our laughter and in our tears, in our joy and in our sorrow, Meet us here now through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name, and give us not only ears to hear, but the hearts encouraged to respond, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, as we continue in the series, I'm trying to continue giving you a framework of the Beatitudes, why they were articulated, and uh, one of the things that happens in the Beatitudes, basically, is Jesus is seeking to reorient our values. And the phrase that I'll, I'll be using a bit is Jesus is changing the price tags. And to explain what I mean by that, I want to tell you a story at the outset. Some years ago, I was in Nepal with a mission team from Bethany, and we were heading off to uh, 
a village five hours, five or six hours by car, another six or seven whatever hours hiking, really accessible only by foot. No one could ever drive there. And we put on, we had a medical clinic for four days or so, something like that. And there were three of us who were privileged to stay in a barn uh, in this woman's, on this woman's property. She and her husband lived in a tiny, tiny house and they had a barn for, they had one cow and a few uh, roosters and chickens and that kind of thing. And then uh, there was a loft that they had built actually for us, like a little platform and it was covered in hay and she takes us in after six hours of hiking. She says, Here's where, this is your room. This is where you stay. And she's very proud of it. It's very incredibly generous for her. And someone in our, uh, in our group, after she left the room, uh, Kevin goes, and I have hay fever. Like I'm literally allergic to hay, <laughs> which was crazy, right? So uh, one of these things that, happened, that happens rarely in my life, but it happened at that moment, is we prayed for Kevin because there was no, no, literally nowhere else to sleep. He had to sleep. On the hay, he brought no Allegra with him, no Claritin, nothing like that. And there's no store. <laughs> so all you can do is pray. And we prayed for him, and he didn't sneeze once, no watery eyes. It was really a miracle, right? But that miracle isn't even the point this morning. That's free, <laughs> extra, right? <laughs> it's just a thing. Just letting you know, miracles happen. Then, uh, so we do our little clinic, and then we're leaving. And as we're leaving... The woman to show her gratitude. We pray for a cow. Amazing things had happened within this community, larger community, because of our presence there. God had done amazing things. She wants to thank us. So she runs up to me and she gives me what I think is a walking stick made of bamboo, right? And she talks a lot in Nepali. And I don't understand any of it. It's a ridiculous language. Another side note. Very hard to understand. I don't understand anything. And, uh, but I nod as if I do, which is my, one of my flaws is... I always pretend I know when I don't. And, and so then, you know, and she does this, and I do this, and we walk away. I think she's getting a walking stick, but it's like eight feet tall. So we start walking away. We got this stick. This thing is kind of flopping in the wind up here. And I go, I don't need this. This is ridiculous. She's too generous. So I bust off, like bust it in half, so it's like a four-foot stick. And I throw the other piece into the, into the field. She, and so then we're walking along. She comes running after us. And then this time with translation, she says to Loke, our friend and translator, just, look, uh, I gave you this gift and you threw half of it away. And I said, well, thank you, but I don't need a big walking stick. I don't, four, four feet will do just fine, you know. And she says, not a walking stick. She says, this is sugar cane for everyone, right? And, and you're supposed to break it off in little pieces and give it to every member of your party as they're hiking, and it'll be, it'll be your food for the journey. You've got seven hours ahead of you. You need this. Why did you throw half of it away? She's a little annoyed with me, <laughs> see? Like, I, should, I can never be a diplomat because I don't understand how to cross cultural boundaries very well. I know that now. But I, so I took the, I went and I got out of the field the other piece, and I realized that this is a perfect illustration of how Often, Satan gets us to change the price tags, if you know what I mean by that. In other words, we value things that are of no value, and we preserve them in our lives, and things that we desperately need, we throw away. And to be blunt, one of the things that we desperately need as the people of God, and just as humans, is we need to learn how to grieve. And yet, it's, it's overwhelmingly tempting to be people who avoid grief at all costs. Who wants loss in life or betrayal? or suffering, or want? 
Who wants to see the gap? Who wants to, you know, bear the suffering of the world? Who wants to do that? Like very few of us want to do that. And even if we wanted to do it, uh, how do we do that? So we, like we sequester the suffering of the world. We, sometimes we sequester our own hearts, our own addictions, the lack of intimacy in our marriage, and we say, yeah, it's just the way it is. Remember Bruce Hornsby. That's just the way it is. Some things will never change. Always racism. Always poverty. Always cancer. Always betrayal. Deal with it. Get over it. Move on. And I'm here to say, in the power of the Holy Spirit this morning, from the Scriptures, no, don't move on. Like, seeing... And mourning is valuable. And what, it, what we're told here is those who mourn are blessed. So before we get into this, this morning, I want to just articulate for a moment what we mean by blessed. This word, makarios, in the Greek language, it appears in every beatitude. Blessed, last week, blessed are the poor in spirit. This week, right, uh, blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. And so the, what does this word blessed actually mean? Well, you can best understand what it means by understanding how it's used uh, in history. And the first usage of the word, like words evolve through, through time, but in, in its earliest usage, the word only applied to the gods. And the Greeks, as you know, many of you know, had a pantheon, they got a whole bunch of gods. And the gods are up here and we're down here. So the gods are immune. They're immune from suffering. They don't suffer. They don't worry about where their next meal is coming from. They don't deal with cancer and death and destruction and poverty. The gods have everything they want. They're powerful. You know, we're weak. They're high. We're low. They're immune for suffering. We suffer all the time. And because they're up here, they're blessed. Makarios. Blessed are those who don't suffer, basically. And then as the word kind of evolved, it also took on the notion of the hero is the blessed one. Because if you're a hero, like if you do something for a group of people and others vicariously enjoy a benefit by virtue of your heroic act, heroes are elevated in society, right? And so if you're, if you're a hero, you're blessed. Why? Because you rise above the normal, mundane, kind of day-to-day -day existence. Some guy, you know, he does the Olympics and he wins seven gold medals. And we, we even say this, oh, he's blessed. Like now, look at now he's going to have endorsements from Nike and, you know, Adidas and whatever, and he's going to live up here while the rest of us have nine-to-fives and commutes, and then we go home, we eat junk food, and then, and then we watch Netflix, and we fall asleep, we get up, we do it again the next day, and the next day, and then we die, that's the rest of us, and then he's up here immune from all of it, right? He's blessed. Oh, what a lucky guy he won. Oh, Russell Wilson, here, me, here, Right? President Obama, here, me, here. Like, they don't have to worry about what we eat, what we drink, what we wear. Never mind that we don't have to worry either. We do worry. But, but they're up there because they're heroes. And then, finally, the word, as the word evolved, came to mean, and the this is the best way to say it, the word came to refer to the 1%. And you know exactly what I mean by that. Those in life who had worked hard and made their lot in life, as they're here, the rest of us are down here. Refer to people whose riches and powers ostensibly put them above the normal cares and problems and worries of lesser folks, right? So, so if that's the paradigm, then kind of the subtext is blessed, we say this way, blessed are those who've arrived, secure financially, secure relationally, secure health, secure, 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 secure. you're blessed. And then Jesus comes along and he... What he does in every one of these declarations is he turns everything on his head. And what he says in this case is the, actually the blessed ones are the ones who are mourning. Not the ones who've arrived, the ones who are mourning. 
This is good because actually few arrive. And, and I have news for you, even if you arrive, you don't stay arrived. Do you, do you know what I mean by that? Like none of us live this life of perpetual bliss, immune from suffering. No, it's impossible. As I grow older, I feel blessed materially and all that stuff. But as I, grow, as I grow older, there's nothing I can do to prevent growing older. Believe me, I try. I, tr I do everything. I do fish oil. I do cod liver oil. I do greens. I do if, if, and then I hear about this crazy Chumbaka tea or whatever that stuff is called, and I drink that and, you know, gut health and, you know, everything. And still, I go to the doctor, and the doctor says, here's why your Achilles is bad. You run too fast. And I go, too fast? Are you kidding me? I used to run a six-minute mile, now I'm running a 10-minute mile. He says, well, how old you were you at that six-minute mile? Oh, you know, 19. What are you now? Oh, you know, 60. Slow down, he says. And so now, you know, I'm out here at Green Lake, and, like, I'm doing this thing, and I'm, it's an 11-minute mile, right? 11-minute mile. And then people are pa I used to count how many people I passed. It was like an ego thing. And now people pass me, and I shout, it's a fallen world, right? <laughs> Look at it. Someday you'll be here too, you, you fast, wicked youth. Someday you'll be with me. Because, I, like, I can't create a world where I'm immune from the effects of it being a fallen world. None of us can. So, so here's Jesus. He comes along today, and he says, oh, you feel the effects of the fall, not just because your Achilles is torn, but because there's cancer in the family? Or because your spouse had an affair? Or because you know that your spouse is addicted to porn and you're terrified to tell anybody? <laughs> or because your parents divorced? Or because there's domestic violence in the house? Are you mourning? Because, because you can't escape the reality of the fallen world? You're blessed if you're mourning. So... The point here this morning, when we talk about blessed are those who mourn, is not to kind of drum up mourning. No, no, no. What we need to do is we need to see where mourning fits on this spectrum of what God says through the, the whole of the text. And what God says through the whole of the text is that mourning is part of a, of a sequential thing. There's, there's, there's a three-part sequence. And mourning, when we see where mourning fits in there, we see the value of it. And so hear me as I articulate this. First part of the sequence, if you're a disciple, you'll see the world the way it really is. You'll see with the eyes of Christ. If you see, you'll mourn. If you mourn, you'll be comforted. Does this make sense? Discipleship leads to seeing. Seeing leads to mourning. Mourning leads to comfort. So we don't start with mourning. We start with what? Discipleship. And from discipleship, we learn to see. And from seeing, we learn to mourn. And only when we mourn are we comforted. And then we become people who can give comfort. We begin then in looking at this three-part sequence by seeing this. Discipleship leads to seeing. In other words, people who, if you follow Christ, Romans 12 says this. Uh, look, don't be conformed to the world. The world sequesters off all the suffering out there and says, no, that, as long as it's not my suffering, then it's not my problem, right? Don't be that way. Don't, don't be conformed to the values of the world. Be transformed. How? How are you transformed? By the renewing of your mind. Well, what, you know, what does that mean? Well, it's important to note that this transformation to which we're invited in Romans 12 happens... As I saturate my heart and my mind with, the, with God's vision for what the world ought to be. And God has not hidden God's vision. Genesis 1, the prophets, particularly Isaiah, uh, the teachings of Jesus, and Revelation become these 
kind of punctuation marks in the Bible where God says this, God's the architect, he says this is the world that I had in mind. And it, you know, in Genesis 1, when God's done creating, what does God say? And God saw everything he made and behold, it was what? Very good. All good. And all good implies, doesn't it, quite clearly, no suffering, no betrayal, no infidelity, you know, everything was good. There was enough. Uh, Adam and Eve knew each other completely. If you can imagine, not hiding anything. You're known and fully known, body, soul, and spirit, completely known without a hint of shame. Incredible. <laughs> Beauty, abundance, uh, pure joy in work rather than work becoming toil. And had the world uh, continued on this trajectory of innocence, there would have been justice rather than oppression. Everyone would have had enough rather than insane wealth and poverty. There would have been peace rather than the bombing of children's hospitals in Aleppo <laughs> and, and, and shootings on the streets of Chicago. There would have been celebrations of peace rather than celebrations becoming targets of terrorism. Markets in France, Advent celebrations in Berlin, nightclubs in Florida. There'd be perfect intimacy, too, rather than posturing and hiding and blaming and human trafficking and sexual addiction and infidelity. And there'd be perfect peace internally rather than anxiety about the future. In other words, if God's the architect the world God had in mind when God created the world is perfect without suffering. And so it began that way. And then Isaiah reminds us, it began that way, and though we have fallen into disrepair, God's heart has never changed. God's heart is for a world without suffering, without disease, without war, without, without human traffic, without infidelity. And then Jesus says it again in Matthew 4 and in Luke chapter 4 and over and over again, and in this beatitude, Jesus says, look, my heart has never changed. That's why I mourn. And then, and then we see the end of the story, Revelation 21.5, behold, says Jesus, when he returns to set up shop once again on this, behold, I'm making all things new. I will fix the broken house. And if you're an architect in the room, anybody is, or if you study architecture, you like architecture, you know the great joy of architecture is to envision space, and then, it's, and then space is created, and you go in the space, and to the extent that, that the space corresponds to your vision, you feel good about it. But what a, it's a tragedy. I tell you, it's a tragedy when you envision space, and then you go into the space, and it's now, it's in disrepair. And so an architect envisions a building. And then he comes into the building that he had envisioned. And he comes in 10 years later, and the walls are cracking, and the paint has corroded, and there's rats, and there's filthy garbage, and there's old newspapers around, and the place stinks. And it's a, it's a grief to the architect because the architect says, this is not what I had in mind. And all God is saying in Romans 12 is this, you be the architect, right? Like, so live in relationship with Christ that his mind is your mind, that you know what God wants. That's, that's what it means to be a disciple. You take God's vision of the world seriously. And so when you see what can become, like if, you're, if you have that vision of the way the world ought to be, you see the potential in something, boom, that's very good. Uh, when, I was in, when I was a sophomore in high school, uh, I played in the marching band. And so high school started in grade 10 for me. It's different now, I think. But it started in grade 10. So, you know, you enter in and you, you show up at band camp in August. School starts in September. 
And if you're a drummer, there's like drummers are like mice. There's lots of drummers. So we don't audition. Nobody listens to us. The band director goes, oh, we play drums, and he gives me a pair of cymbals. Well, I didn't want to play cymbals. I want to play snare drum. That's what the cool kids do. But whatever. I'm a sophomore, so like a monkey can do this thing. And I, and I do it all fall. And then, and then you know, football season ends, and the band director goes, okay, time for auditions for, you know, concert band. So we had, our school had a tiered, like, hierarchical band system. You had this elite band that went and played in competition stuff, and then anybody who didn't make that played in this other band. And I, like, it was, I was desperate to want to be in concert band, but there were, like, 12 drummers, and only two were going to make it into marching, or into concert band. So I go in, I play, you know, a little snare, you don't have to hear the whole thing, but I, I played timpani when I was younger, and so I... Dun, 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 and then a little bit of this. And then the band director, he listens to me, and he says, come in my office. Now, I tried out for basketball, and when I heard that, it was not good news. So <laughs> I was concerned again, but this, uh, he looked at me, and this is what he said, you have a gift. Do you know you have a gift? I said, no, I don't know I have a gift. He says, oh, yeah, you have a gift. <laughs> you have perfect pitch. You played all this stuff, no perfect sight reading. He says, uh, I think you're the best drummer we have. So, A, will you be in concert band? And I was like, I could do that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and then he says, oh, and as you know, we have this even smaller band. We're going to Europe in the summertime. I want you to go. I said, well, I'll have to ask my parents. So I go home, and my dad had quit his job. So money was a bit sketchy. And, I, and, and so I went and I said to my parents, hey, I made contraband and they want to go to Europe. And then my mom is like this, no, 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 too expensive, flying, Europe, <laughs> World War II, you know. <laughs> I mean, you get it. No! And then my, here's my dad and he was sick and I'll never forget it. She looks at my mom and he, then he looks at me and he says, he's going. Whatever we need to do, he's going. It's so beautiful when someone sees potential in you. Does that make sense? It's beautiful. And, by the way, it's beautiful then in the same way. Hear me. From the heart of God, it's beautiful when you see the potential in the world in which you live. When you see the potential for a world of peace and a world where everybody has enough and a world where every disease is healed. But hear me, if you see the potential, you also, you'll see the gap between what ought to be and what is. And when you see the gap, you will mourn. Does this make sense? So, so what, here's what many of us do. We don't want to see the way the world ought to be. Or we may know the way the world ought to be, but we don't want to see the way the world is. And so we shut the news off, and, and, and we privatize our faith and we say, you know what? I've got my ticket punched. I'm headed to heaven. That's good enough for me. And as long as I stay sober and pay my taxes and remain faithful to my wife, that's a Christian life. I'm here to tell you this morning on the authority of Scripture, that is not the Christian life. No, no. You, God has given you eyes to see a broken world so that you can be salt in the midst of decay, light in the midst of darkness. And it all begins with seeing what can be and seeing what is? But here's the problem. Discipleship leads to seeing. Seeing leads to mourning. <laughs> in other words, the natural response, if I really see the world God has in mind, and I also see the way the world is, 
the response is morning. I'll give you an example from, from Jesus. I'm reading in um, John 11. And so just listen for a minute. This guy, Lazarus, has died. I think the brother of Mary, a very close friend of Jesus. So the Jews who were with her in her, in, in her house, and they were consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her. They supposed that she was going to go to the tomb where Lazarus had already been buried to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came out where Jesus was, she saw Jesus, she fell at his feet, and she said, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she's weeping. And then, listen, this is so powerful. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews also were weeping, this is what it says, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Jesus, hear me, deeply moved in spirit, troubled, and then, we read this, Jesus wept. Now, this is, I mean, we all know that that's the shortest verse in the Bible if you've been around Christianity a long time, right? That's the layup in a Bible quiz. Like, give me a verse. We all, we learn it. But, ponder for a moment here. I'm Jesus, and I know, and you're Lazarus, and you're dead, but this is what I know. In five minutes, I'm raising you from the dead, right? So why wouldn't I come to this party and say, hey, listen, everybody, we just stop the crying and break out the cake? I'm about to perform, like, the mother of all miracles here. This guy is dead. He's going to be alive. And only that, but I'm going to be dead, and then I'm going to be alive. And because I'm going to be dead and alive, even though he's dead and is alive and dies again, he'll also be alive, and so will the rest of you. And this miracle is just a prototype of the reality that I'm making all things new. So why the crying? Why didn't he do that? It's a very good question. And here's why. Because Jesus is teaching us here significantly that we live now in a gap between what ought to be and what is. And we need to, and when we're in that gap, the response to the gap is mourning. And it's not only legitimate, it's what God invites us to do is mourn. Like we're invited to be people of mourning. <laughs> why? Because there's a gap. We're made for peace, not Aleppo. We're made for health, not cancer. We're made for beautiful, intimate marriages, not, not stale civility or divorce or infidelity. And we live in this gap. And Jesus, when he's in the gap, it says he wept, and it's interesting, four different Greek words for weeping. This one, tears of anger, that's what he wept. He's angry that, that uh, the architect had this beautiful structure in mind that is our world, and though there's still sunrises and beautiful moons and snow and skiing and coffee and friends, it's also deeply, deeply broken. And Jesus weeps over that. Jesus weeps because he sees. He sees what can be and he sees what he is, and it's because of the gap that he mourned. And then further, Jesus' complaint in his day was that the religious leaders had created systems and teachings that didn't help people see the gap. Instead, people became obsessed with their own personal performance so that they could say, oh, look, I'm doing my little part, and it's good enough, and so I don't need to weep. And so Jesus calls those guys blind guides because what he's trying to teach all of us is this. Look, the life that we have made peace with, like we've made a pact with the way that the world is, here's Jesus shouting, this is not normal. Wake up. 
Poverty is not normal. Stale marriage is not normal. Cancer is not normal. Terror is not normal. Children's hospitals being blown up are not normal. Black lives not mattering, not, not normal. Police lives not mattering, not normal. The death, the, the, the murder rate in Chicago, not normal. Eating poison, not normal. 20% of the world's population using two-thirds of the world's energy, not normal. Two billion living $3 a day, not normal. Others know it's abnormal. I mean, if you're in it, you know it. But some of us just turn off the news. And, and we view MLK as a day, as, it's, just not, it's, another, it's a day off. Ooh, good, Monday. Listen, if God's people don't have room for lament in worship and in daily life, it's because either we're blind to the way the world is or we're blind to the way the world ought to be. And I just want to point something out to you. Creation isn't blind. Romans 8 says that creation is mourning right now. Like grieving, longing for our redemption because creation knows that when we're fixed, everything's fixed. The residents of Aleppo were mourning. <laughs> the millions of immigrants created by the Syrian crisis are mourning. People who were living in the, under, the, under I-5 in what was called the jungle are mourning as they've been displaced. African Americans are mourning. <laughs> doctors are mourning. Nurses are mourning. Especially doctors and Nurses working in ER or oncology, and especially those working in pediatric oncology, they're mourning. Addicts are mourning, at least some of the time. Do you see the gap between the way the world is and the way the world ought to be? The way your life is and the way your life ought to be? If so, can I just say to you as your friend and as your pastor, pay attention to the gap, because it's in the gap that we mourn, and, and the mourning is important. Why? Because discipleship leads to seeing, seeing leads to mourning, and finally, as we close, mourning leads to comfort. Morning is the comfort. And the word comfort is an interesting word. Parakaleo uh, is, the, is, a, is a verb version of paraclete. And paraclete, the noun that comfort is a verb of, the noun is paraclete, that's the Holy Spirit. Parakaleo is, is comfort. So what is the Holy Spirit's job? The Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside, walks with us through valleys, like he doesn't guide us around valleys. He walks with us through valleys. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Psalm 23, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you, God, are what? With me. You're with me in darkness. You're with me in cancer. You're with me in loss. You're with me in injustice. You're with me in poverty. You're with me in disease. You, God, are with me. And so I will walk in this valley, though I don't want it, though I'd never choose it, I will walk in this valley. And here's the thing. When I am comforted in the valley... The amazing thing that happens is I'm transformed by the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm transformed so that 2 Corinthians 1 then says, because I mourned and God met me and comforted me, I'm now able to be a comfort to you. How awesome is that? If we mourn. <laughs> because when we mourn, God meets us in our mourning. I was speaking down in... Portland between Christmas and New Year's, and uh, I had shared in the context of speaking that, that my dad had died when I was in high school, and a young man came up to me with tears in his eyes, and he threw his arms around me. He says, will you pray for me? And I said, of course I'll pray for you. Uh, what? Why? And he said, because uh, two weeks ago, my father and all my brothers and sisters, he had three brothers and sisters, they all died, and our, our family plane went down in Alaska in the mountains. It's just me and my mom now. He's crying. 
And I'm able to say to him, I can weep with you in a unique way because my dad died when I was 17. Yeah, we can mourn together. Blessed are those who mourn, not only would be comforted, but you'll become a voice of comfort for another. By virtue of God having met you, you will now walk with others through valleys. So embedded in this promise is a call to mourn with others. I mean, that's Jesus weeping by Lazarus' tomb. And by the way, that's MLK, the man whose life we celebrate tomorrow. He uniquely, in American history, he invited us to a holy dissatisfaction. He invited us to really pay attention, to wake up and see the gap between where we are and where we're called to be. And so I'm going to just invite you to listen for a moment, and then uh, I'll call us to response. But listen to some of what he had to say about the power of dissatisfaction, and then we'll have a time of response together. So I conclude by saying today that we have a task, and let us go out with the divine dissatisfaction. Let us be dissatisfied until America will no longer have a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds. Let us be dissatisfied until the tragic walls that separate the outer city of wealth and comfort from the inner city of poverty and despair shall be crushed by the battering rams of the forces of justice. Let us be dissatisfied until they live on the outskirts of hope, are brought into the metropolis of daily security. Let us be dissatisfied until slums are cast into the junk heaps of history and every family will live in a decent sanitary home. Let us be dissatisfied until the dark yesterdays of segregated schools will be transformed into bright tomorrows of quality, integrated education. Let us be dissatisfied until integration is not seen as a problem, but as an opportunity to participate in the beauty of diversity. Let us be dissatisfied until men and women, however black they may be, will be judged on the basis of the content of that character, not on the basis of the color of that skin. Let us be dissatisfied. Let us be dissatisfied until every state capital be housed by a governor who will do justly, who will love mercy, and who will walk humbly with his God. Let us be dissatisfied. Until from every city hall, justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Let us be dissatisfied until that day when the lion and the lamb shall lie down together. And every man will sit under his own vine and fig tree and none shall be afraid. Let us be dissatisfied. Men will recognize that out of one blood, God made all men to dwell upon the face of the earth. Let us be dissatisfied until that day when nobody will shout white power, when nobody will
will shout black power, but everybody will talk about God's power and human power. And until that day, dissatisfied. Because we've seen a gap between what is and what ought to be. And our calling in that gap, <laughs> blessed are those who mourn. It's right there we find comfort. And so here's how we respond uh, uh, today. It's very important that we honestly lean into our own grief and not only uh, lean into our grief, but allow others to share our grief. So uh, in this moment, in this first moment here together, there are people in the room, I know it, who are facing personal grief, personal grief, because uh, there's something broken, a broken relationship with children, a broken relationship with parents, a health challenge in the family, a disease, a loss in the family, an, an untimely death in the family, and, you, and you're grieving, and, you're still, and the grief is there and it's real, and you're walking in grief right now, po the grief of poverty the grief of unemployment, the grief of those children. If you're in grief this morning, you're walking in grief, I'm going to ask you to do a very courageous thing. You don't have to name it out loud, your grief. But if you've been grieving, would you stand? Those who are facing grief. I don't want to thank you for standing. There's grief all around us. And uh, Eric's going to sing a song that is, in a way, a prayer. And I'd invite you who are standing to listen. And I'd invite those around, those who are standing, to stand and lay a hand on those who have stood courageously so that they know they don't walk alone. Take a moment. Let's stand and surround our brothers and sisters as Eric prays in song for us.